Hello and welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Ella Whelan. Throughout the last nine coming on 10 months, the UK has been in some form of restriction or lockdown and having political discussions and public debates has been difficult, but not impossible. The Academy of Ideas has been putting on discussions via Zoom for months now. And among ourselves within the team, we've been having weekly, sometimes twice weekly, discussions about how to deal with the difficulties and challenges that restriction and lockdown poses to us, as well as how to understand the endless numbers of data that comes out of discussion about the virus. And so today on this special podcast of ideas, I have with me the Academy of Ideas team, Simon Belt, Mo Lovett, Rob Lyons, Alistair Donald, Jeff Kidder, Jacob Reynolds and Claire Fox to help us go through some of the areas and topics that we've been discussed throughout the year of this new normal of the pandemic. So I thought we'd first start off with how the balance of pro-lockdown and anti-lockdown arguments have been handled because sometimes it can feel like there is only really one message in town and one message that's tolerated. So Alistair, how have you been feeling about the way in which the kind of discussion of the pandemic has been handled? So I, I think the, the the really disappointing thing actually has been the lack of uh, uninhibited discussion about the virus and its impact. I mean, if you think about it, we're what, almost a year in now to this virus. We've started from a very low base of knowledge about it. And OK, we've discovered lots of new things about it. But it seems to me that there's still a lot that we don't know and still a lot that's disputed about it. Likewise, uh, in terms of the way that we've responded to it, um, it's not clear what actually works and what doesn't work so well. So there needs to be a lot of discussion and debate on every aspect of this virus. And that's where uh, it seems to me to be lacking, because we can take uh, practical measures, uh, and sometimes these need to be taken uh, given the seriousness of the situation without too much discussion. But that seems to me doesn't uh, undermine the necessity to have a broader discussion on what the virus is and how we deal with it. And, and if we look at uh, the situation with, for example, social media and things like YouTube, where uh, uh, people who want to say uh, and, and want to take issue with the dominant way that the response has been dealt with, then they're undermined in their capacity to pursue an open discussion about it. In the press, for example, um, we see quite a number of situations where people who take an alternative opinion are hounded and and told they can't say that. So it does seem to me that we're in a moment where we really need to uh, assert the need for a much wider discussion on all aspects of this virus. And Claire, there have been some quite serious free speech implications for the discussion around the pandemic. I mean, I'm thinking about the fact that talk radio was taken off YouTube, okay, temporarily and for not that long a time. But uh, there is this sense that anyone who's putting out a not sceptical, but even just sort of mildly critical or, or or some form of question around the government strategy towards the virus is being clamped down upon as being censored. I mean, we've seen this before in various free speech battles, but why is it sort of more important in the middle of this pandemic? So I think quite early on in the pandemic, um, it was initially seen that anyone who challenged the kind of official medical position, you know, people like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and the big tech actually explicitly said, uh, following on from what Alistair was talking about, they explicitly said that might be seen as misinformation going against the World Health Organization or official health thing. And we're going to either label it misinformation or remove it. And an awful lot of uh, videos were removed. The irony of all this initial um big tech intervention and effective censorship is that it's turned very unhelpfully the discussion around a, a new virus that's affecting the whole world uh, that we should all be discussing and open about it's turned it into something of one yet another part of the culture wars people are becoming more and more paranoid about why things are being banned saying you know a lot of people saying they don't want us to hear that so that's fueled a certain conspiratorial thinking also, um, people like Toby Young, very helpfully, has got a, a, a regular a discussion called Lockdown Skeptic, Skeptical About the Lockdown. And that's, uh, I don't agree with the, uh, everything that that publishes at any, by any stretch, but it's given that label 
lockdown skeptics to everyone. And I've I've now explicitly heard people in government circles saying, you know, lockdown skeptics are COVID deniers and they have to be tackled. They are demoralizing the health service. That's a very dangerous moment for us because it means that people get polarized. I don't know what I think about lots of aspects of this and I wanna ask questions and read widely. I don't wanna be forced into a position whereby I, um, you know, have to identify with a, a, a lockdown denying label or a lockdown a skeptic label in order to conform to somebody else's interpretation of events. So it's very important that we keep arguing for an open mind. Uh, the virus keeps changing, my mind keeps changing, and that's as it should be in an open society. We need to understand it more. And Mo, the role of the media has been sort of fascinating to track because a bit like things that come before the virus and thinking about Brexit there's this sort of underlying sense that actually it feels like most journalists are on the same page and that page is pushing not just to support the government strategy but for harsher lockdowns for longer lockdowns for more restrictions what what impact does that have on a public that really is only interaction with what's going on in politics at the moment is through watching these interminable press conferences on television yeah I mean I think the um one thing you can say is the media has had this extraordinarily prominent role with throughout the kind of uh COVID uh crisis so much so I was thinking you know if Russell T Davis or somebody like that was going to write the write the script for coronavirus the movie they would have to have a significant subplot you know if you think right back to the very beginning when um we had those interminable kind of gotcha style questioning at the daily press conferences and then uh, we kind of went through to the incessant kind of doom laden narrative of the daily death tolls day after day, where I know a lot of people uh, round and about the doors kind of switched off because it was just too much to kind of cope with that in kind of incessant um, messaging. And then over the summer, we had all that kind of public finger pointing exercise at Bournemouth Beach and, uh, and all that sort of thing right through to then the Dominic Cummings saga when he, you know, prominent figures being kind of hounded for breaking the rules and then finally hoisted by their own petard at Christmas, two very prominent Sky journalists kind of uh, got caught breaking the rules themselves and, and, and faced the wrath. So there's a real arc in, in, in terms of the media's kind of role within this, this whole crisis. But I mean, think really importantly, um, whilst the, this um, kind of constant, we are holding the government to account um, is put forward. What they haven't done is they haven't held the government to account on two really key things. First of all, the care homes uh, situation. I mean, they did eventually come round to that, and, and they're, they're probing it now. But there were there were other kind of um, less prominent journalists, um, you know, Rob and other people who were really pointing to this potential crisis unfolding in the care homes long before the kind of mainstream media. I know they hate that phrase, but we know what we mean by that. Had cottoned onto that, and then lockdown. It's really, really um, important to remember that this is the first time in medical history that governments have ever used a lockdown of cities of entire countries to try and control a pandemic. I mean, it's historically unprecedented. And yet on that one key policy as kind of Alistair and Claire have already pointed out, there has been this sort of compliance from the media that this is the only way to go. And as uh, Claire and Alistair have already pointed out, any questioning of that, um, most notably, I suppose, talk radio have been quite questioning of that. But of course, we saw what happened. Uh, and I won't like, kind of repeat the points that um, that Claire and Alistair made. But, you know, this is normal journalistic practice to ask questions of a key government policy. And the very, very few journalists are doing that. So, um, yeah, on the other hand, you've got, um, you know, the fact that uh, still Ofcom published last week that 86% of us are tuning in once a day to get our news from the TV. So it's not really um, wavered in terms of viewing figures. I mean, it was as high as 99% at the beginning of the pandemic, but 86% is still very high. So we are getting our news, most of us, um, through. So they have had an important role. Um, and, you know, as you alluded to, pushing government policy, pushing for tighter, earlier lockdowns. Um, I don't know if people remember, there was this one point where a lot of the uh, media outlets talked about, well, if the government are going to open schools, then they're going to have to shut the pubs. And all of us saying, what, why? That's a completely different kind of demographic. Why do we have to do that? Then sure enough, 
um, you know, the pubs got closed and the schools got open. So I think they have been driving um, government policy. And, you know, you have to say, why aren't government kind of strong enough to stand up to that relentless pressure? But certainly very noticeable dynamic. And Simon, I mean, that relationship between the public and the media, never mind the relationship between the media and the government, with the sense that media is meant to, well, really is acting as the the public in terms of being able being really the only method of putting questions and pressure on the government at the moment is there a disconnect there I mean lots of people might be tuning in to watch the news but are all of us rolling our eyes or what's going on with that contradiction with the fact that lots of people seem to support lockdown but at the same time get ticked off by uh, journalists being kind of high and mighty about uh, moralizing around the pandemic yes yeah, so I speak to a lot of um, small businesses that are carrying on working uh, at their premises and at home, but also quite a lot of uh, IT suppliers who are supplying the products to allow people to work at home. And rather than talk about the technology, most of the uh, customers and suppliers end up talking about COVID, the pandemic, uh, the uh, instructions from the government and the way that the media just don't give all the answers and don't ask the right questions. And so you end up having a lot of conversations where you're trying to find out the answers yourself, between yourselves. Uh, and there is a real um, annoyance with the way that the media close down the discussion uh, to the extent where the government's simple messaging of uh, stay at home and all that, when a lot of people can't. They need to um, go to work. And it, the thing that really irritates a lot of people is the uh, that kind of gotcha journalism where people, um, where the media are looking for uh, a statement from a government minister or something uh, like that, where they can wind people up so much and force a mistake when everyone else is just sat watching the media wanting answers to... Uh, really important questions and an explanation of where uh, the virus was being passed on, how it's been passed on, uh, and what we can do to um, ameliorate it. And the inventiveness of a lot of business people and uh, workers of how they're working their way around uh, scenarios uh, is phenomenal. And if only some of that uh, capability capacity could be used uh, in a more productive way uh, it would be it would be so great aside from the media one of the other things that this pandemic has thrown up are questions about the role of public health I mean we've done many debates over the years about public health and public health England Rob um, this is a real public health crisis and how do you think it's going to change our relationship with the idea of public health will it get kind of more uh, in relation to kind of the precautionary principle, will there be more panics about public health or will going through something as serious as the coronavirus pandemic maybe make us relax about all the other things like smoking, jogging, eating sugar that we've been panicking about for the last few years? Yes, I mean, I think you're right to, to mention that point about the history of public health in that it was about infectious disease in the past um, and we sort of sort of the great public health breakthroughs have been about being able to monitor the spread of infection, about learning about what is causing infection. So the classic example is Jon Snow and the water pump uh, in Soho and this, and this discovery that there was um, cholera infection associated with that. Um, and, but, and the decades it took before it was finally accepted, thanks to Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch, that actually it was in it was bacteria um, that was causing a lot of this uh, disease rather than miasmas. So we have this these great breakthroughs in terms of public health and in terms of uh, sewer systems and uh, all the all these other things in terms of vaccinations, which obviously are right at the forefront of our minds now. But there is a point at which, from sort of the seventies onwards, where the that kind of ran out of steam. We weren't being uh, so badly affected by infectious diseases. And there, there was a sense of a, a loss of mission, perhaps, in the medical profession. 
alongside uh, a sense that you know of the sort of the the, the dying off of the, the old political norms, and so that in a sense, uh, medicine became political, and politics became medical. In that there was this this coming together of a disenchanted medical profession, or a bit bit lost about what to do with uh, politicians looking for a way in which to influence people at a time when other ways of influencing people had sort of were dying off, whether it was the monarchy and the church or the unions or whatever. So these things all came together. The problem with all of that, we saw in spades at the start of this pandemic, because the thing about public health is, it's stuff that, it's aspects of health that can only be done at the level of the state or at the the grand level. And that's where infectious disease is, is, um, is, is something we can't control for ourselves that well, that we have to do something about that. Um, at, a, at, a, at a grander level and public health England and other bodies were simply unprepared for that problem. They had spent so much time and devoted so much um, financial and uh, intellectual resource on um, on t- telling us how, how to eat, how to, um, whether trying to get us to stop smoking, all these other things, the lifestyle choices that we make and are aware of that might have health implications. Um, and therefore, there wasn't the PPE, there wasn't the testing capability available, and all these other problems just really held things back at the start of the p- pandemic and meant that we were flying blind and that uh, hospital staff were in a very, very uh, dangerous situation and care home staff as well. So it would be nice to think that that um, the scrapping of public health and the replacement of, of it with a, with a more traditional body that looked at infectious disease would actually work and that we would see less of this stuff. But as we can see with Boris Johnson becoming a born against a skinny person or trying to become one, um, that actually the, the result has been more intervention and we're going to see more intervention in the future on lifestyle choices because those will be blamed for putting pressure on the NHS even more than they were in the past. So it does worry me and it does worry me that um, precedents have been set about how much they can intervene in our lives. The flip side of that also is not just precedent set on how much they can intervene in our lives, but also a, a precedent set for how much people should want or should be prompted to want intervention. So the whole question of the worried well, which is something that kind of we people might have talked about flippantly beforehand, but you know, but though it had serious implications, is now having very real serious implications because because of the desire for or the support for public health um, campaigns in the past, whether it be smoking, whether it be obesity in kids, whether it be all these, uh, you know, uh, the fascination with women breastfeeding and there's huge amounts of money pumped into kind of campaigns around that. You now have a health service that can't survive a pandemic that is failing to give people cancer treatment and all sorts of things because the resources aren't there. And it part, not all of it, but part of it comes down to this total overreach of what the NHS is supposed to be about. And it's kind of completely stretched in terms of its focus. One of the things that I've been sort of morbidly fascinated by is that lots of my friends or lots of people I see on social media are kind of getting tests every time they've got a tickle in their throat. And that's, again, a kind of symptom of the sort of the worried well aspect of this, which is no one, very few people are kind of thinking, let's think in terms of common sense here. Do I actually need to use these services? Do I actually need to go to see the doctor? Do I actually need this (laughs) to have the sweets in Tesco taken away from me at the checkout? Or can I be sensible about this? And so that's something to really watch in how this plays out after the pandemic but I sort of share your pessimism Rob moving on to a different aspect of this which is the way in which the restrictions have been policed and the role of the police themselves which has been really quite interesting to watch because if you talk to some people they say we're living in an authoritarian state and yes some of the restrictions are incredibly draconian videos of women being arrested for sitting on benches and uh, being fined for going on walks slightly outside of uh, their local area on the other hand uh, I'm not entirely convinced that the police have the authority that um that they perhaps used to, uh, which might lead, in, you could argue, to a more dangerous situation where you have lots of individuals just acting on their gut instinct rather than there being um, a real set of laws to follow. But uh, Alistair, if I could come back to you and just see what you think about this sort of weird contradiction within the aspect of policing the pandemic. 
Um, yes, so I, I suppose in the light of what you and Rob have just been saying, then this idea that we live under a police state might be better presented as we live under a kind of biosecurity state in a way, in, in, in the sense that as uh, many aspects of our lives become more and more integrated with medical considerations, then every, the, the things that the state does is it operates around these, these, these medical scenarios. I suppose in the way that it's experienced in everyday life, it's almost like it's become the fixed penalty notice state in a way. I was reading uh, yesterday, I think it was, that there's now considerably in excess of 30,000 fixed penalty notices being um, issued over, over, over the past uh, nine months, which is a huge number. Um, and it seems to me these are doled out, um, you know, like sweets almost uh, for the slightest bit of uh, deviation from what are the, the, the rules that have, have been introduced. So I think that's a bit of a problem. And, and in a way, I suppose, um, rather than the police state, it, it kind of points to a situation that's maybe more better better understood as an extension of the recent uh, uh, last couple of decades where we seem more and more to have moved from a situation of laws where you're you're pretty much free to do everything um, but you're you know you cannot do uh, some things because the laws prevent it into a situation where life has become more and more and especially life in towns and cities and public spaces become more and more licensed around these kind of petty rules uh, with officious people um, imposing themselves and telling you you can't do things. And it seems that the COVID period has almost extended that into a situation where instead of being free to do things unless the laws present, prevents it, we're now in a situation where you're not free at all to do anything unless you're actually permitted to do it. Um, and therefore you have these, the, the, if, you, if you look at all the rules these days, um, they're, they're, uh, they're exceptions. Staying at home is, 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 is the kind of, um, uh, you know, is, is the thing that everybody has to do unless you meet a few criteria for where you can venture out. And I think that's, that's, that's uh, uh, becoming a, a, a real problem. And it leads to these strange situations where you, uh, Matt Hancock often talks about flexing the rules, which is a really strange um, phrase because the law, in a previous situation, the law would be the law. You either meet the criteria of the law or you don't in which you're arrested and, and, or, or, or whatever, Where Whereas this idea of flexing the rules um, means that everybody's now concerned about whether they're meeting the permitted exceptions to be able to do things. And it leads to very strange situations where uh, people are, are pulled up for the, the, you know, the girls in Derbyshire for the other day, for example, who were stopped because they went for a walk in a, in a, in a kind of, bit of woodland. The strangest people, people who would never, ever consider themselves to be in any way criminal are now caught up in these petty rules and criminalized and, and issued fixed penalties. And just finally, I, th I think that one of the strangest things is the way that a lot of the protests have started to, to, to almost uh, mimic some of the, 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 the police state regulations that, that uh, in, in this petty sense. I mean, uh, I was very struck watching footage of a, a, a protest recently where um, the police were filming the protesters, but the protesters were all filming the police back. Each were trying to see if everyone else was observing the rules. And, uh, you know, the police just want to, they, it's not like a police state where people are jailed and they disappear for years. It's just they're taken away and issued a fine and back they come and they're at the next protest. So it's a very, very strange situation, even to the extent where those there's a, there's a discussion going on just now about those girls in Bournemouth, whether they actually faked uh, that whole situation and deliberately um, walk together so that the police would intervene so that they could then film the police so that they could use it as a promotional video against police intervention. So we're just in this strange world just now of petty rules and it's, uh, you know, you just wish there was a bit of decent discussion and a, a, a proper protest against it. And Jeff, people are obviously arguing that the numbers are as high as they are, that the the answer is that you need the police to step in and make sure that people follow the rules. But of course, the knock-on effects of this, what's called emergency powers at the moment, uh, we know from uh, history that what gets Im implemented as emergency powers often is quite difficult to remove. And so the knock, you know, while you might have an argument about whether or not it's it's necessary to find people for breaking the rules, the implication of greater police influence on people's and involvement in people's lives. Is a tricky one. Yeah, uh, I, I tend to agree with your 
the way you've just presented it. I agree with much of what Alistair said, but we have to understand it's a very particular situation, it's a very particular circumstances where you have a health emergency. Many people, the I'm not a fan of the lockdown, but most people in the country have consented to have their lives locked down and have consented to what the government's doing. And so it isn't a police state in that way. There are a lot of overbearing rules and a lot of rules uh, that have come in, which I don't agree with. But you have to understand the broad circumstances under which these have happened. And my concern is more what you've just said. One particular laws are very overbearing, particularly the fact that all protest uh, pretty much is now illegal, except for picketing, which is a very serious uh, uh, thing to take, to take away uh, at any time. The arbitrary character of the rules, which Alistair discussed, is a problem. And the fact that in many cases they're subjectively, or they can only be subjectively interpreted by the police. And what you've said, which is the main thing, which is people may have consented to being locked down, but there should be a time when this period is over and they are then, all those rules are then removed and at least we go back to where we were before. And already it's being discussed as this might be a long time and maybe not all the rules will take away and, and be removed and some of them will stay as has happened historically. That to me is, a bigger, is the biggest problem and one we have to guard against. And the other thing I would say, which is a general problem, is at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an attempt for the state, I think, certainly in the UK, and the people to sort of have a consensus on how these things were done. Um, I'm not saying it was a successful, but there was an attempt to get consent. Now, the government makes an announcement, imposes these laws overnight, more or less, or changes the regulation, and everything is done to people. And people experience the whole thing as a population, even if they generally consent to, to being locked down, but people experience it as this thing is being done to them all the time, at every circumstance. There's no sense of dialogue or people having any input in, into the way that happens. And that then feeds through into the way these laws work and the way they're interpreted, where somebody goes for a walk in one place and it's fine. Somebody does something similar and it always ends up being in Derbyshire, and then they get arrested for buying a cup of coffee, which obviously is ridiculous. So I think that you have to, one, look at the particular circumstances and say, no, it isn't a police state. It's a particular set of circumstances. We might not agree with how it's happened, but it's happened in a particular way. But I think there are very many dangers, particularly in going forward, where we have to, at a certain point, say, right, this pandemic is to all intents and purposes over or it's coming to an end. And then all these regulations which were brought in for this specific purpose have to be removed. And that's where I'm worried it might not happen. Well, Jeff, you just mentioned the fact that, you know, looking into the future, and it's difficult to do that because at the moment, everyone, especially with the press conferences releasing daily figures, everyone's very much in the present. And it's hard to get people to look into the consequences of what might happen in a few months, maybe a few years time. One of the, the big questions is how the economy will fare um, from the the effects of the lockdown and the restrictions that we faced over the last uh, nine or ten months. And Jacob, I mean, a lot of the focus gets put on whether or not Rishi Sunak's given up enough cash for the self-employed or whether he's extending the furlough scheme or, uh, you know, whether or not small business are going to survive. But is there a kind of bigger picture of the, uh, you know, the sort of full sense of security that we might have about the economy at the moment? I know that anecdotally people are, there's lots of people who are struggling, but there's also lots of people who are sort of existing in limbo uh, and things might change for them for the worse when the immediate uh, effects of the, and the immediate danger of the pandemic is over yeah i mean as, as a summary hard to argue with that i mean people economists will pour over this period for decades to come because it's almost like a economic situation unlike any other i mean like in wartime the state takes over areas of economic decision making but unlike in wartime the economy is kind of decommissioned rather than people being mobilized and like in a normal crisis or recession large numbers of people are not working but this time it's because of artificially suppressed demand rather than normal demand shocks and only a fraction of those out of work are actually uh, unemployed because of the furlough. You've got huge state and central bank spending, but that's going into an economy with uh, less going on than usual. The traditional indicators obviously suggest 
kind of almost economic miracle territory of huge stock gains, nominal government borrowing costs, low unemployment, all things considered, large household savings, low personal credit utilization, house price rises, all the rest of it. But we know that this is like both artificial because of the government intervention and also masks a variety of problems, not least uh, the huge disparity between groups, which we could roughly mark as between those who uh, stay at home and work and the rest. And government shutdowns have obviously affected I think we can say small businesses disproportionately. And so the kind of market's natural tendency towards monopoly is accelerated and all of the bad consequences that come with that are likely. I mean, it's not out of the question that once restrictions are lifted, there's something of a boom because many businesses will have like made it through and they'll still be able to reopen and they'll have their premises and all the rest of it. People will have lots of money to spend because lots of people have saved uh, lots from not being able to spend on anything else. And people, I think, importantly, want to celebrate, and that's a legitimate thing too. Um, it's, but it's also not out of the question that as furlough winds down, the restrictions drag on, large numbers of people become unemployed and businesses from cinemas to cafes are simply no longer viable. Um, and so it's like a, a black box. What, what is clear is that the government has shown a kind of decent desire to shield people from some of the costs, but uh, little... Uh, appetite to take the opportunity to uh, really sort of transform the economy in a way that would boost productivity, living standards and the rest. And I mean, something that we've noted on some of our lockdown debates before is that the recovery, as much as there is one, is will, is currently being talked about and will perhaps in the future be marked by uh, the green agenda and other things that are detrimental to living standards and productivity. It's kind of hard to say anything else other than hold your breath at this point. And Rob, I mean, the thing that's keeping me up at night, as it were, is the idea that or the fear that once this is over, the way out of it, um, on behalf of Rishi Sunak or the Conservatives will be to implement some kind of austerity or something like that, that will that will find its authority or find its kind of basis in the idea that and they've used this phrase that we have to kind of all chip in together to right the ship which is you know pretty disingenuous given the fact that that we might have consented in some ways to um lock down our lives to protect against the virus there have been lots of measures um, that haven't that have been taken without consultation of the public i mean is that is that fear unfounded or how do you see this playing out in the next few years well i mean i don't think they can impose austerity straight away certainly because uh partly because there'll just be ongoing costs related to um, the, the, the pandemic and just, you know, they'll, they'll be wanting to um, just try to press every button to kind of get the economy going again when they do. I think that, um, so, and also I think that the, the austerity, the, the appetite for austerity that was there in the uh, post-financial crisis period in the, in the early years of the Cameron government, that, that's kind of gone, fallen out of fashion now. Um, and there is also isn't the same pressures on um, governments in terms of our, you know our you know our currency might get attacked because you know the, the markets don't think that we're um, we're paying down our bills in a situation where every major economy is saddled with a huge amount of debt. So I think I think that that, that in the short term, short to medium term. I, Obviously, they'll have to rein in all this, these hundreds of billions that they've been spending so far. But in terms of a, 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 a massive austerity drive, I, I don't see that too soon anyway. Uh, the, although there may be things like tax rises uh, to try and cover this. Um, and also, there, we're in a position where the interest rates are so low now that they can afford, afford to borrow and even... Uh, people are accepting negative interest rates just to store money. Even the very low interest rates are actually, in effect, negative interest rates because people's savings are being um, eroded by inflation. So, I mean, and it's things like that that worry me more in some ways. It's just this, this long-run uh, of effect of deliberately crushing the economy for uh a year means that the, the economy will not get back to the growth levels, I mean, back to the, the level of, of output um, that we've seen in the past um, for some considerable time. That means they'll keep interest rates low. That means that we'll have asset bubbles. 
uh, as we're seeing with house prices, with share prices, and we'll see people's living standards in terms of anybody who's got savings or is reliant on savings or a pension or whatever, their living standards are going to fall as a result. So there's all sorts of different ways in which this could, this could play out for both positively and negatively. And as Jacob says, it is a black box. I mean, we really don't know what's inside, what kind of rotting not nastiness is inside this box until we start to to lift these measures. Um, uh, but I see plenty of reasons to be gloomy. I see some positives as well in that, as Simon said earlier, about the ability of businesses to adapt to these things has been impressive. And in some ways, productivity will, will have had a boost because of that. And we will have got some rid of some companies that were actually dead, would the Arcadia group and people like that who were on the who were going to slowly disappear have just been taken out of the equation very very rapidly um so yes um plenty to be worried about though i'm certainly spring summer next year i i would not like to be in a position where i was looking for a job well looking back to spring summer last year i mean in terms of a different aspect of this which is public uh, goodwill or public sentiment about the um, pandemic or the challenges that lockdown face. Remember back in Larch in the first lockdown when we were having these meetings, we were talking quite positively for different, for many different reasons. But one of the key things was that there seemed to be a genuine sense of we are all in this together. The clap for carers that happened back in the early days of 2020, at the beginning of this whole thing, was really quite genuine for many people. It was something that people looked forward to every week to go out and see their a glimpse of their neighbours um, while we were in the throes of this very isolating thing. Almost a year on, and the picture's very different. Simon, what do you think this whole, the whole way the government has handled this, how has it had an effect on pu- public goodwill or pu- the public's sense of itself as well? I'm always buoyed by the fact that... Uh, there is so much goodwill by most people to uh, contribute and help each other. It is very frustrating, though, that uh, people who do want to volunteer um, just aren't being mobilised. And the kind of enthusiasm for people to do that themselves does seem to have taken quite a knock. Just to give an illustration of um, through golf, which is very close to my heart and one of the few forms of exercise um, that I take. In the first lockdown, there was quite a lot of arguments, uh, even by golfers who accepted that golf should be banned. Um, This time round, absolutely nobody and none of the people first time round have any belief that banning golf is a good thing and that is dispiriting and it is it does sap your 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 will i don't think it's overall um going to affect how people could uh, or would volunteer but it's more things like the volunteer center where i live the local groups can't meet and all those people that would come out and transport people for vaccinations, um, help man 24-7 vaccination centres. Even the local leisure centre has offered itself to uh, be a vaccination centre. But the closing down of so many aspects of um, our lives means that none of that comes together and there's no kind of obvious practical mechanism through which uh, anyone uh, would kind of be mobilised or uh, organise these things spontaneously. So uh, there's a kind of overall sense in which you just can't do anything and uh, feel your way into helping out in a positive way. And things have become so narrowed that we need officialdom to uh, say, yes, we can do it. By which time most people just think, give it a rest. You're the people that uh, were sat outside the reservoir um, waiting for a couple of walkers to to go for a walk and then nab them from disturbing you. It's very frustrating and it's difficult to see how people could volunteer. But I think the will is there. People are 
always remarkably generous, um, but I don't know quite how it would uh, take form. Yeah, it's very difficult. I think two things can be true at the same time, as with lots of aspects of this pandemic, which is that I've noticed that when you're walking down the street, everyone kind of has their, lots of people have their head down with masks on. But if you kind of, the minute you sort of wink or smile at someone, even under a mask, they tend to they tend to smile back. There is a sense of little aspects of interaction become very important for people. And that actually gives me good hope. On the other hand, as you said, Simon, the especially with the question of volunteering, I mean, there was a huge uptake in the government's call out for volunteers back in the first lockdown. Again, there was a huge uptake for call for volunteers to help out the NHS this time round in relation to vaccinations. And the government has failed to mobilise those volunteers in many cases I mean, through some kind of kind of bureaucracy screw up, it seems like a lot of the time or a failure to kind of think out the box of how to organise these people. And so that can be very demoralising. The truth is that the closing down areas of public life, which, you know, were which were kind of being attacked anyway before coronavirus was ever on our lips, pubs, community centres, sports um, and kind of areas where people informally and freely mix and come together. And that's taken a real knock throughout the pandemic. I mean, Jeff, um, you're a sports fan, first and foremost, but also some, you know, have in previous podcasts talked about the ways in which not just sport but sporting life and everything that comes with um that aspect of social life has been affected by this pandemic yes thanks ella yes my winking hasn't always been so successful but but i'll persevere uh, with, with your encouragement um there's just two points i was going to make uh, first is a, gen- a, a general point which is that it's in terms of what's happening going forward and the opening up of society again which is something i'm concerned about um, there's, there's a lot of talk about if, if we could have the Roaring Twenties again, as happened after in, you know, in the 1920s, after the Spanish flu. And I think, firstly, the, there's more to the Roaring Twenties than the Spanish flu. There was a whole number of other things in society. But also, I don't see that that uh, kind of hedonism or that sort of behaviour uh, is necessarily the way things will go. I can see that when we're released from the lockdown, People, you know, the cork will come out of the bottle and various things will happen. But I think in the longer term, there's so many factors and so many people with a vested interest, such as the environmental agenda, where people are looking at these lockdowns and thinking, well, this more restrained society has got merits in terms of what happens with the environment and the planet. And there are elements of this, this might be unfortunate with the pandemic, but there are elements of this we want to take forward, such as less traveling, such as uh, less driving and, 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 and more restrained lifestyle. So firstly, overall, I don't think everything's gonna come back and flourish. I hope I'm proved wrong. On events itself and sports in particular, um, uh, I, I am very concerned because uh, right until the beginning, right until last March, there were big crowds, lots of events, and now that has gone completely. And it's not even clear whether the Olympics this summer in Japan is going to go ahead at all, even without crowds. And so right into the future, it's not clear that big sporting events, uh, even w- without any audience, are going to happen. And also, if you look at football in the UK, the, I mean, much football's suspended in the lower leagues, both in uh, England and in Scotland, but also... Um, uh, it, people have come to terms in many ways with not having crowds at football matches. And people don't like it, but there was limited demand to have limited crowds uh, in the autumn. Since that's gone again, there really isn't that much pressure. And I'm, I'm worried about how easily uh, uh, many of these things have, have become accepted and that it could take a long time to go back to the previous situation where people behaved and mingled and you know basically let themselves go in a carefree way whether it's horse racing football or events which we're an events organization uh, you know going back to organizing large events where people can chat at the bar go for you know uh, go for a drink go for a walk talk to somebody then go to a debate just have that thing where you're not constantly thinking about health as a as a dominant narrative 
I can see that taking quite a long time. Hopefully, Mo will be able to say something more optimistic about it. But for me, I'm quite concerned. Uh, and I hope I'm proved wrong. And I hope we can get back to things in the summer and almost kick on from where we left off. But uh, uh, I'm concerned that there are many constraints at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I sort of I have shared um, Jeff's pessimism a little bit. I mean, the events industry are talking about um, how they can encourage, eventually uh, encourage confidence for people coming back into their uh, venues. So I think we will see sort of some of those underlying trends, the kind of health and safety aspect of events and uh, in theatres and all the rest of it, we will have questions about social distancing, the flow of traffic, hygiene, sanitizers, uh, and all of that sort of thing. I think that will be used as a kind of way to encourage public uh, confidence back into public venues. I do have a little bit of a, a glimmer of hope in, in a way, though, because, I mean, not least um, this morning, the BBC was reporting that the travel industry have noted this kind of sudden and unexpected growth in bookings for holidays and travel. And TUI um, have said that the growth has risen by 50 percent in the last two weeks. And one travel company said, uh, you know, their bookings have gone up 185 percent. And, and it's most notably in the kind of over 50s and they're putting this down to vaccine confidence. So over 50s predicting when they might get vaccinated, absolutely dying for a little bit of joy and happiness and they're booking their travels. I know my parents have booked uh, two holidays for later on in the year and you know they're gonna risk it and take a chance that, that it won't be spoiled. So I think that there will be, you know, we forget that there is this underlying human need for social activity. Um, and so that gives me a little bit of hope for confidence that, you know, that people have been talking about missing going to the theatre and, and cinemas and all, all the rest of it. So, and young people in clubbing, I mean, I just know my niece is absolutely dying to get out back out there clubbing again. So I, I, I mean, it's really a difficult prediction. It's a bit of a fool's game, but I do think there will be this kind of, not necessarily a roaring 20s. And I appreciate what Jeff says about this, we don't live in a hedonistic culture by any means, but I think there will be a drive for people to kind of get back out and have some kind of social life. I mean, in terms of the arts, my, my, my worry is more that um, the arts will be kind of dominated by a kind of health and well-being agenda um, in that uh, the, the arts will be seen as something that can um, counteract some of the depression statistics that we've been reading about this week and the the kind of um, effects of having been locked down and being isolated and that we will see more of this kind of instrumentalization of the arts in terms of health and well-being and that that will perhaps be a bit of a dominant and that could be an ideological kind of dominant uh, trend anyway so uh, much as we talked about going into this pandemic how some of those underlying trends in society safety culture uh, lack of um, risk-taking uh, were exacerbated by the pandemic. I think there'll be quite a lot of ripples and echo effects from that. But um, I, I do think people are dying to be with other people again. So I have a, a glimmer of optimism. I've seen lots of people posting about the fact, and I agree with it, that all the things that used to annoy them in the past, they now long for. So I can't wait to muscle my way through a tiny London pub to pay a fiver for a flat pint. It's just the kind of thing, fighting with bartenders to get served. It's all coming to us and I don't like it when people try to falsely paint some kind of positive because the reality is the last year has been really quite terrible and there are lots of things to criticize and there are lots of things to fix but there is light at the end of the tunnel and it comes in the form of a jab in the arm the vaccination program has been met with a huge amount of celebration uh, across the country because it potentially does give us a way out of this and it's been fantastic to see how many people are supporting it and how many people are desperate to get it and we've now got news from the government that they are going to consider 24-hour um, the prospect of 24-hour jabs and rather than leaving it just to 8 to 8 service um, in GPs what is it that we need to get out of this slump as well as the vaccination program I mean almost kind of psychologically or politically what do we need what kind of mindset do we need to put this year into as a page in history rather than a kind of blueprint for the rest of the way we live our lives the new normal is something that we've criticized a lot in our various zoom debates across the last few months at the academy of ideas the concept of the new normal um 
having a kind of sour ring to it. But Jacob, what kind of hope do you have for the future? And feel free to be pessimistic if you like but if there's anything um what kind of your wishes for the way in which we think about things moving forward yeah i mean the so the, the vaccine is um news to be cheered but is uh we have to re- keep critical because the vaccine also can be a could be a double-edged sword because it can kind of reinforce one of the trends that's been a real issue throughout this pandemic which has been the inability to sort of understand or discuss and accept risk so as a targeted intervention to help protect those at risk of serious illness, the vaccine is obviously brilliant. But so often during the pandemic, we've seen people demand the sort of total absence of all risk and things aren't safe or safe enough until there's no risk at all. So we can easily imagine staying locked down and restrictions with us until everyone is vaccinated and perhaps even beyond then, because the no vaccine will be sort of fully effective. And so you can imagine arguments going on that we need uh, restrictions in order to mitigate that as Alistair they called it the biosecurity state so it's vitally important that we uh, argue for like the full and immediate lifting of restrictions once an appropriate number of the most at risk are vaccinated because we have to sort of revisit the uh, mentality that has dominated a lot of uh, the response so far which has been one as, as I say is uh, uncomfortable with or doesn't understand risk and sort of doesn't accept that there's more that life is for living not just for uh existing or subsiding so so there's that secondly the i mean the fact is the deployment is a huge logistical challenge um which again is like a a double-edged sword because it's a real wake-up to states around the world that have allowed infrastructure and their bureaucracies basically their ability to get shit done to wither and petrify atrophy and all the rest so there are some encouraging signs and there's forced the government to figure out how to do things at scale and do things quickly. Uh, my 80 plus year old neighbours are being vaccinated today at a mass vaccination centre and they, one of them sent the text saying that like it was sort of brilliant and well organised and everything works smoothly and exactly as you expect and all the rest of it. So there's good stuff. But we all know, obviously, there's already been stories of people sitting in cold rooms for hours with busy crowds or... Um, the sort of XGPs having to take diversity training or 50 page terms and condition forms that people have to read in France and all the rest of it. So this is an opportunity, a real key moment for us to demand the kind of sort of responsive and creative approaches and public services that, that we want and need. And this isn't just a question of money. It is also a question of money, but it's a kind of whole attitude of uh, that puts doing stuff and getting out and achieving things and solving problems first and paperwork second. We could be grateful, I guess, for, that we didn't go down the sort of American approach of having a woke bureaucracy decide that we would have prioritized certain groups first, even though they knew that that would take longer, even though they knew that that would cause more deaths. So the, the rot hasn't quite set in as much as it has um, over there. But this, this is a big opportunity because there's huge programs going on. And like any programs, they can accelerate bad tendencies that exist in society. But there are also opportunities for us to sort of get stuck into them and shape them in the way that would be more creative and more responsive to what I think people actually want. Claire. I want to emphasise the positive, uh, if I can. Uh, one of the things that the vaccine has shown us um, is that you can, with effort and focus, develop fantastically important medical interventions without uh, years and years and years of regulatory uh, intervention. And we saw that even with the, 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 the ventilator challenge, if you can remember back that far and all the rest of it. So one of the things I'd really like to, to take from this is the human ingenuity that we also associate with scientific development and innovation that has created the vaccines. And we should celebrate that. The fact that there's a number of them around, but also I see today that there's more and more non-vaccine related health interventions that are working on people who've got COVID. So there's just all sorts of indications that at our best as human beings, we can problem solve. And we're going to need to do a lot of problem solving moving forward, but we can take that as something of a an inspiration, it seems to me. The vaccine, though, 
uh, Jacob is right. If, if we only see a, a medical intervention as our only way out of this, despite its great promise of allowing freedom, we shouldn't imagine that freedom is dependent only on medical interventions. We, we, we've got to move away from this idea that uh, we must be uh, locked down until we're totally safe as a concept. I mean, that would be terrible. I, I my, my dark, you know, people have talked about their dark fears. My darkest fears are the development of a kind of nihilism and a divisiveness where people blame each other. I'm, I'm afraid some of this has been officially encouraged because we're told that lockdowns haven't worked because people haven't complied, people are irresponsible. There's been this massive attack on anyone who asks any questions about the efficacy of the vaccine uh, being described as anti-vaxxers. Actually, there's a tiny, weeny, tiny group of people who fit into a kind of ideological objection to the vaccination because it's big pharma or some conspiracy. But nonetheless, it's talked about more than it exists. And that gives the impression to the majority of people that there's, you know, that other people are, you know, backward thinking um, and, and should not be trusted. And so what we need a shot in the arm for, if you want, is a belief in each other. You know, it's to go back to that sense where your your default position is, is that everybody else is all right. You know what I mean? Everyone else is just like you, that they have good intentions, that they're not negative, that they're not that they're not lunatics. Um, and that we and, and and to trust each other and to not imagine that when people are flexing the rules because they're doing the right thing, that that makes them uh, irresponsible. But it might make them grown up adults who are making a decision about looking after somebody who's vulnerable and um, that when people are asking questions, that gives them uh, that that's actually a positive thing because it means that they're intellectually curious and not just passively accepting what they're being told and so I want us to have a sense of enthusiasm for each other and to stop this kind of divisive pointing the fingers at each other so where the vaccine fits in with all that is it's a technical way that we get hope but it also should be that we absolutely say okay you've sorted that technical issue out you're vaccinating people we now want to know straight away when you're going to lift these freedoms and stop using excuses. You know, you've now got no excuses. You said, <laughs> we're gonna hold you to this. You said once we could vaccinate the vulnerable because it was the vulnerable we were going to protect, that these measures would no longer be necessary. And I think that demand for a timescale in the most immediate sense is crucial. It's interesting actually that some of the people involved in Public Health England even have said, well, actually, yes, we will have to accept that some people who won't be vaccinated probably will get immunity naturally. What they mean is get the back, you know, one hates to say the word herd immunity, but there is an acceptance now that they're not going to wait till everyone has been vaccinated to let us go free. And I think that people are beginning to understand that they're so desperate to get out of this that they will live with a level of risk. One of the most inspiring groups of people in all this is the elderly. I have to say, all these people who say, oh, you can't have a 24-hour vaccine service because the over 80s, I mean, how would they get there? You, Whenever that happens, you get all these over 80s, feisty over 80s saying, we will go anytime, any place, we'll walk, we'll do whatever it takes. They have been, you know, they're sometimes... Um, portrayed as being the kind of victims of this but actually huge numbers of elderly people have been actively showing their their autonomy and their res resilience really by saying no we want to live we want to see our grandchildren we want to take the risk and we'll do anything to get that vaccine another group of people who are uh, just to, to sort of finish which is we often portray as victims and they've undoubtedly been absolutely shafted are the young the closure of schools the terrible way that's happened at universities and you know all of those things but and, and i undoubtedly i think we are going to end up with some mental health crisis at the end of this I, I i can't but think that people have had the stuffing knocked out of them and that psychologically it's been damaging however i think it was um mo and ella maybe have emphasized a lot of people want to go clubbing the reason i mention that is because the young have got the ability more than anyone else to just say we're prepared to live with covid we're prepared to take the risks 
the elderly and the vulnerable have now been looked after and we're going to go out and live life to the full. And so I think that that desire amongst the young, the bravery and the courage amongst the young should not be underestimated. And we, uh, those of us my age, should not overdo it in describing the young as being uh, destroyed by this period. You know, they, they will have lost education. They, their opportunities are limited in terms of jobs and so on, but it's not the end of the road. They're young. They can make the future. They can make society. They are the generation that will have the opportunity. And it's just possible that having experienced a long period of having freedom denied will make them understand what freedom is and appreciate it all the more and give them the kind of boost that we will need as a society to lead us forward into a freer period. It's a risk, but it's one I'm going to fight for. I'm going to argue that's what they should do, because that, to me, is where the hope lies. Mm-hmm.